we will get started in just a moment as soon as everyone gets in the room. Let me go ahead and get started with our housekeeping. Welcome to today's Journal Club webinar. My name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of SNEB and glad you're joining us for our session today uh, where we're celebrating the best of JNEB. In this case, um, we have an article that was considered uh, for was considered a runner-up for best research brief. Uh, so a little bit of housekeeping as we get started. I'm going to go ahead and drop the slides for today in the chat uh, so you can download those and follow along. We will take questions at the end of the session, uh, so please put those questions in the chat or the question block uh, so we can moderate questions to our presenters. And um, a reminder that when I close the webinar today, there's a short survey, and we appreciate your feedback on this session as well as any ideas for future webinars. And then watch for an email follow-up. It should be Wednesday of this week uh, with a link to the recording, um, the slides, as well as the CEU certificate that you're earning for your attendance. So I will turn things. Oh, and just a reminder, I do have the chat trans or the transcript turned on. Um, if that feature is helpful for you, you can enable that for yourself. And I will turn things over to our moderator, Dr. Kristen Filippo, who's a teaching assistant professor at the University of Illinois. Thanks, Rachel. Today, we have two speakers sharing their work with us. Jocelyn Dixon is the project coordinator for the Food-Based Early Education Lab in the Department of Nutrition Sciences at East Carolina University. Jocelyn has worked with the Feed Lab since 2017 and has experience in qualitative and quantitative data collection and analysis, team management, stakeholder engagement, and quality control. In addition to her primary job functions, Jocelyn has been honored as the inaugural BB&T Excellence in Student Leadership recipient and the National Truman Fellowship finalist for her commitment to leadership and service. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Nutrition and Dietetics and a Bachelor of Arts in Hispanic Studies from East Carolina University. She is currently pursuing a dual master in public health and nutrition science. Dr. Virginia Stage is a registered dietitian and associate professor of nutrition science at East Carolina University. Her research is housed under the Food-Based Early Education Lab with the mission to empower early childhood teachers and families with evidence-based strategies to improve children's ages three to five years dietary quality through evidence-based education and environmental changes. Over the years, she has worked with over 300 plus um, preschool through eight teachers nationwide on how to improve food and nutrition learning environments in school settings. I want to thank them both for being here today. And at this point, I can pass it over to our speakers. All right, thank you so much for that introduction. Um, and as was mentioned, my name is Jocelyn Dixon and I'm at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. And I'm excited to be here today to talk to y'all about our um, JNA publication. And just as kind of some background before we jump into everything, I, um, in, in terms of my part in this project, I oversaw um, the team that conducted the intervention that will be described um, in this presentation. So. We want to go to the next slide. I can introduce you to the rest of um, our team. So I'm joined today on this call um, by my colleague, Virginia Stage, who's an associate professor at ECU, as was mentioned. And I've also included some of our other authors um, on this slide. From ECU, we have Anu Hege, we have Way Beyond, Stephanie Jillcott Pitts, Amanda Peterson, and Sarah Burkholder. And we also have Susie Goodell of NC State. So just to put it out there, we don't have any actual or potential conflicts of interest in relation to this program or presentation today. 
And also we are covering some of the competencies and I'm not gonna sit here and read through all of these, but we do hit on competencies, um, essential practice competencies, CDR learning codes and SNEB nutrition education competencies. So those are there for your review. And again, you can get to the slide deck in the um, chat. So the goal of today's webinar is to firstly review current evidence and research gaps related to food-based learning in the preschool classroom. And then we want to describe methods and the methods and results of a quasi-experimental pilot study that assess the effect of science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics food-based learning activities on three to five-year-old children's vegetable liking and skin carotenoid levels. And we'll dive deep into each of those things. And then thirdly, we want to discuss um, the study's conclusions and also opportunities for new research, which include a current study to develop a professional development program to teach Head Start teachers how to use food-based learning to improve dietary and kindergarten readiness outcomes. All right, so um, many of you might be familiar with um, Head Start, which is the federally funded preschool program. And they started in 1965 and since beginning, um, they have been serving over 1 million children um, nationwide each year with the mission to promote school readiness and wellness. And they're, um, they really focus on serving children and families who come from low income backgrounds. Head Start is regulated by federal program performance standards that provide research-based practices to address both academic and health um, goals for preschool children. And so these standards require that Head Start programs include educational components that are developmentally, culturally, and linguistically appropriate that focus on school readiness with an emphasis on things like language, literacy, math, science, social and emotional wellness, and nutrition and physical development. So you can tell with how comprehensive that is, Head Start really tries to address and approach the entire child. So in support of um, Head Start's goal to support children's wellness, um, Head Start programs are required to follow appropriate feeding practices educate children about food and nutrition and participate in the child and adult um, child and adult care food program or CACFP. And so CACFP has policies that dictate the type and quantity of food that needs to be served in Head Start with the goal to expose children to as many fruits and vegetables as they can during their time. So just to give you kind of an idea, some of the regulations that CACFP sets up is, for example, when mealtimes occur, children have to be provided with at least two fruits and vegetables at each meal while limiting foods with added sugars and saturated fats. But not only that, the fruits and vegetables need to be in whole or otherwise recognizable forms when served to children. And so this just means that Head Start can't hide veggies in mac and cheese or in spaghetti sauce or in other creative ways. They want the vegetables to be seen and recognizable by children. And this is really important that CACFP policies guarantee that children are served healthy foods because it's estimated that children from low-income backgrounds, which is the population that Head Start serves, spend up to 30 hours a week um, in childcare where they consume the majority of their um, daily nutrients. And so this provision of healthy foods is really, really key. So the work that is done in Head Start, again, further matters because one in three children who are entering Head Start are classified as overweight or obese. And this slide displays the increasing rates of childhood obesity, specifically among children from low resources living in North Carolina. And I want to draw attention to how there's a slight decline in overweight children, but at the same time, a sharp increase in um, children who are obese. And some studies have suggested that the COVID-19 pandemic resulted in weight increases, particularly among children who were already overweight. And so these findings are really concerning um, for us who are nutritional prof nutrition professionals. And so diving even further, the importance of positive experiences with healthy foods like fruits and vegetables are even more important for children from families with low income and food and potentially food insecurity concerns, because research suggests that these children are at an increased risk for low fruit and vegetable consumption compared to the general population. And this may be linked to children's family socioeconomic status as one third um, of children entering Head Start come from homes where food insecurity um, is a concern and where there may be decreased access to healthy foods like fruits and vegetables in the home environment. 
And we know that higher diet, higher quality diets are associated with better academic outcomes in children's and in later years of childhood and adulthood. Um, and so this is really key because when we think about Head Start, their ultimate goal is to address the whole child, but they really want to make sure that these children are prepared for kindergarten, they're prepared for school readiness. And so addressing this health component really helps us get to that point. But the thing is, if simply putting a plate of broccoli in front of a child at preschool actually got them to eat said broccoli, we probably wouldn't be here researching this today. And so as evidenced by the literature, while children may have access to healthy fruits and vegetables at school, that doesn't necessarily mean and really doesn't mean that they are eating them. So that begs this big question, what are strategies that we can used to level out the balance so that when healthy foods are available to children, they actually consume them. So in other words, how do we get from this unbalanced scale to this balanced scale? And so diving more into the literature, this slide presents the two-stage model that was created by Susan Johnson. And it uniquely illustrates how children's preferences and eventual consumption um, for healthy foods evolves. And so in this model, she highlights both developmental and environmental influences. And so I wanna first start with the factors that are not directly related to or impacted by the preschool classroom. So you can see those in the top left corner out outlined in that, pur um, not purple, teal box with the teal arrow. And so I want to first draw attention to a child trait called neophobia. And you may be familiar with neophobia, but in case not, it's also known as the fear of the new. And it's really common among preschool children. So sometimes because of neophobia, children may like a food one day and then the next day suddenly reject that food. And this creates a lot of frustration in adults. And research tells us that the preschool years actually neophobia is heightened. And so this three to five year old time frame can be a really difficult yet critical time to impact children's preference and consumption. And so um, vegetables particularly are difficult because of their bitter taste, whereas fruits have a natural sweetness to them. You can see other factors in this box, such as sensory sensitivities, um, temperament or genes that can make trying, liking, and consuming vegetables, um, extremely difficult. So now I want to kind of go down to the blue box in the bottom left-hand corner that talks about the environmental aspects that impact a child's um, preference and, and how they develop preferences for healthy foods. And in this way, we know that the home environment is also important for dictating children's early experiences with vegetables. We have factors like parents' attitudes, health behaviors, socioeconomic status, and the quality and quantity of vegetables that are available in that home environment all play an important role on really setting the scene for that child's development of um, preference and consumption for healthy foods like vegetables. And these issues are heightened challenges for Head Start families who, may come, who, who do come from low socioeconomic backgrounds and or may not be familiar with techniques um, to cook vegetables or how to, um, to buy vegetables on a budget. And so those are really, really key aspects to think about before we even step inside of the preschool classroom. However, speaking of the preschool classroom, parents um, or families and parents should not be considered the only influence on children's dietary behaviors. A study by Mita Goodell and colleagues termed teachers as the parents at school to indicate the significant impact that teachers also have on children's development of fruit and vegetable preferences. And if you think back to that slide where you know, they're consuming, children are consuming a lot of their daily nutrients inside of the classroom, emphasizing the importance of teachers in this whole model. And so early learning experiences and vegetable availability at school can also impact children's intake. And so now I'm going to, we've kind of talked about those three pieces, and I want to move into that yellow box, which really focuses on the strategies that we can take advantage of in the classroom to influence children's preference and consumption. You'll see circled in red repeated exposure and repeated exposure to healthy foods through meals and hands-on learning activities in the classroom is one great strategy to increase familiarity and eventual consumption of healthy foods. If, in fact, the repeated exposure strategy in which children are offered the same food over and over again has been cited as the most effective way to promote intake of fruits and vegetables. And this concept is borrowed from psychology in the theory of mere exposure in which the same stimulus is again provided over and over. 
So we'll take a look at an example of this with music. And this is something I think we can all relate to. So um, let's say you're driving in the car and you hear a song for the first time on the radio or on Apple Music or whatever you listen to. And you think to yourself, hmm, not a huge fan of that song. And then the next time you hear and the next time you hear it, you start to think to yourself, actually, you know what? I kind of like this song. It's kind of catchy, you know, and by the end of the week on your way to work, you find yourself with it blasted up to 10 and you're singing along and it's your new favorite song. This is the theory of mere exposure. But the great part is, is that it doesn't just work for music. It works for um, vegetables as well. And so with a child exposing them to, let's say, broccoli, the first time they might reject it. They might think, I don't like broccoli, but over and over as that stimulus is provided, their preference and eventual consumption increases. So going back to the model, these exposures or lack of to healthy foods um, like fruits and vegetables is a key strategy that can increase or decrease the likelihood that children will learn to like and consume healthy foods into adulthood. In fact, prior research suggests that it might take as many as eight to 12 taste exposures to increase a child's willingness to consume a new food. And these exposures are really important for the Head Start environment because despite their best intentions, parents may give up offering a new or rejected food prior to reaching that 8 to 12 threshold, especially when we think about resources potentially being low and food waste being a major concern, making those exposures to healthy foods in the Head Start environment even more critical to work alongside with the parent. In fact, considering developmental and environmental influence like those that we just discussed, we might have an even greater chance to help young children develop healthy eating behaviors through hands-on classroom learning experiences that emphasize exploration over consumption and occur outside of the food environment where children can use all five senses, not just taste, but all five senses to explore food without the additional pressure to eat them. Specifically, food-based learning or classroom-based methods that we use to improve children's willingness to try and consume healthy foods can be used um, to increase children's exposures to fruit and vegetable in an environment they don't feel that they are expected to then eat the food. Unfortunately, prior research in Head Start reveals that Head Start teachers face a plethora of barriers to incorporating food into the classroom. Things like lack of training. How do we even do that? resources, feeling like they need to purchase things out of pocket, not knowing where and how to get healthy food into the classroom, policy confusion, thinking that we're not allowed to bring food into the classroom, being confused about what Head Start policies state about food-based learning. And lastly, lack of time. As we stated before, Head Start is really working to try to address the whole child, but they want to make sure that these children are ready for kindergarten. And so teachers have reported feeling stressed, feeling like they need to focus on these kindergarten readiness outcomes, these science, math, literacy um, objectives, often making nutrition fall by the wayside. Interestingly, though, prior research with Head Start teachers suggests that they do value food experiences in the classroom and have cited uh, or pontificated that in integrating nutrition with other learning domains like your science, math, literacy could be a strategy to address those barriers that we just talked about, such as lack of time, resources, etc. And so we knew moving forward that this idea of integrating food experiences with other domains may be key to addressing those contextual issues that didn't seem to be going away, like that limited time and um, competing priorities. But we needed to figure out how integrated food experiences could potentially impact preschool children's development of preferences and ultimately their consumption of healthy foods. And so this leads me to our study that we conducted in 2018 and 2019 that was published in the Journal of Nutrition, Education, and Behavior in April 2021 and was identified as the runner-up research brief for the Best of JNEB 2022 series. And we conducted this study for a couple of reasons. We knew strategies like repeated exposure could impact children's willingness to try and consume vegetables. Secondly, we knew integrating food experiences into other learning domains like math and science had already been cited by Head Start teachers as a potential way to address contextual issues. But we were curious, could integrative learning actually impact children's preference and consumption of healthy foods? 
Therefore, the purpose of our study was to assess the effect of food-based science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics, or STEAM. And this, you might've heard of STEM, and it's just STEM plus arts for, um, to make it STEAM. Activities, so do those STEAM activities on Head Start children's liking of nine target vegetables and objectively assessed fruit and vegetable intake, which was measured using skin carotenoid status. And we hypothesized that vegetable exposure through those STEAM food-based learning activities would significantly increase vegetable liking and consumption measured um, through objective measures like skin carotenoid status compared to children who were not exposed to those food-based learning integrative activities. The two guiding research questions, and you can see them on the slide, were, is there a difference between initial and final child reported vegetable liking? over the seven week program? And is there a difference between initial and final skin carotenoid measures over the seven week intervention? And on the right side of the screen, you can see a map of Eastern North Carolina, which is where we are. And you'll see in red, um, the intervention site, and then the two blue dots were the comparison or control centers. Um, and an important thing that will be um, talked about later on is that all three of these centers came from the same overarching program. And that'll be important um, in the discussion. So talking specifically about the food-based learning intervention, the intervention consisted of seven hands-on um, STEAM food-based learning activities that were implemented over four months, so September, four months on, that exposed children to nine target vegetables. And you can see those vegetables on the right hand of the slide. And target vegetables were selected on the basis of prior exposure as determined by parent report and or the potential of the food to influence skin carotenoid status. So five of those vegetables being high in um, carotenoids. Each of the activities lasted 15 to 20 minutes and included circle time where there was group discussion and a hands-on activity highlighting a science, math, and or language concept. And since I mentioned before, we know that mealtimes with children can be stressful. So these activities expose children to vegetables through science experiments, such as why do vegetables grow roots and math problems, like how can we learn about volume by measuring out dressing for our broccoli salad? But these occurred outside of the mealtime environment. And children were really encouraged to explore target vegetables using all five senses um, and were given the opportunity to taste the vegetables at the end of each activity, but the tasting wasn't the main focus of the activity. However, making sure that those vegetables that were included in each of these food-based learning activities was available for consumption at the end was critical to prevent food waste, especially while working with children who may come from um, homes that deal with food insecurity. And so looking a little bit closer at what an activity might look like, um, this is an example, a zoomed in um, look at the um, what makes broccoli green um, activity. And so it started, like I said, in circle time with children looking at um, and talking with their with their teacher about what are the parts of a vegetable flower? What do we know about broccoli? And then working with the teacher said or working with the um teacher set up an experiment to steam broccoli and observe color changes in water. And so that would involve making a prediction panel, asking um, children to predict what they think, what color will the water turn when we steam it? Um, and why do we think that that might happen? So creating a panel for that. Thirdly, after conducting the experiment, asking children to document, to draw their findings and talk to each other about what they saw during the experiment. And while they're doing that, asking them critical thinking questions about what they just experienced. And then lastly, like I said, each activity ended with the opportunity for children to taste the vegetables. Um, and so you can see that there. So in this activity that I've just described, we were really focusing on concepts heavy in science and art. But each of these vegetables were featured in at least three of the activities. And so perhaps the next activity would be something that focused on literacy and math. So we might read a book called Monsters Don't Eat Broccoli and then again, measure volume for a vinaigrette for our tasting. So going on to um, the data that was collected from parents. So parents were asked to fill out a basic demographic survey to determine children's prior exposure to those nine target vegetables. 
And parents were also asked, uh, and on this slide, actually, what I want to point out is this scale. So this is a five-point hedonic scale from super yummy to super yucky, and it'll be important to show um, in a minute when we look at the child um, evaluation tools as well. And you'll notice that there was a checkbox for um, parents to note if the child had never had that specific food. We also asked parents on the next slide about um, neophobia. So we wanted to hear about where does your child fall in terms of how how um, the degree of neophobic behaviors that they exhibit? So asking questions like, um, my child does not trust new food to tell us where they fall on that, or my child is very particular about what they will eat to show us where they fall um, on questions like that. And so each parent was given both of those surveys. Regarding children evaluation tools, children were assessed using the veggie meter, which you can see in the bottom left corner, which is also um, known as pressure mediated reflection spectroscopy. And the veggie meter is the tool that measures skin carotenoid status in the skin and is reflective of fruit and vegetable consumption over the last um, six to eight weeks. And we also used a validated pictorial child liking tool that asked children to identify how much they liked the target vegetables. So you can see that on the right hand of the screen. And this tool uses a five point hedonic scale ranging from super yummy to super yucky. And it showed children a picture of the fruit and vegetable and they had to point to how they felt about that vegetable. All the photographs like this one with the radishes that were used in this tool were cognitively evaluated during Head Start's summer health fair in 2018 with Head Start children. And so this tool is based on research um, that suggests that liking is reflective of eventual consumption. In terms of data analysis, um, independent t-tests, chi-squared and Fisher exact tests were used to calculate and compare demographics at baseline. We use repeated measures, ANOVA um, was used to examine the effective time at the three different time points and um, for both the child reported liking scores and the skin carotenoid scores. The dependent variables were changes in child reported liking and skin carotenoid scores, which were two separate models. And the independent variables were sex, age, BMIZ score, and intervention versus comparison. A post hoc power analysis using the sample size as reference was conducted with a level of 0.8 and a sample size of 74 was needed to show significant differences at P of less than 0.05. And all of our um, analyses were handled in um, SPSS with the version there for you. So moving on to the results, a total of 113 children, 49 in the intervention, 64 in the comparison, participated in the pilot study. And children were between three and five years of age with the intervention group being slightly older. And the majority of children were also African-American. But the important thing about this slide is that aside from age, there were no significant differences between the intervention and comparison groups for these demographic variables or any of the primary measurements like liking or veggie meter um, at baseline. And so um, age was then controlled for in the analysis. So as I mentioned previously, parents were asked to report prior um, their child's prior exposure to those nine target vegetables before the intervention began. And so with this graph, you can see that both groups, both intervention and comparison, had some type of exposure to the majority of the vegetables. So children in both groups had the highest reported exposure to broccoli and carrots and the lowest reported exposure to radish. We also, though, were curious about what was was happening with these exposures at school menus because like I said before, Head Start participa participates in CACFP, which dictates that healthy fruits and vegetables have to be provided at every meal. And so we were curious, okay, how many of these target vegetables are actually appearing and being served to children based on school menus? And so this is where it's really key where I pointed out um, a couple slides back on the purpose slide that all three centers, regardless of if it was intervention or comparison, came from the same program. And that's important because it, it tells us that, okay, these menus are the same because it's coming from the same program. So we know we're comparing apples to apples. And so on the school menu over the four course and the four um, months of the intervention, broccoli appeared on the menu eight times, sweet potato three, tomato three, and carrot six. 
So moving on to the results, and we're going to first tackle the research question number one, which was, is there a difference between initial and final child-reported vegetable liking over the seven-week intervention program? And again, you'll see on the right that we used a five-point hedonic scale ranging from um, super yucky, which would be one, to super yummy, which would be five. And so at baseline, you can see that um, both intervention and comparison groups were at three, which would equate to that middle um, smiley face, with, which we would call just okay. Um, and so repeated measures ANOVA determined that a time by group interaction was not significant for target vegetables between the two groups. And you can see at the end, so at the February time point, both groups were still about at um, that three mark, but the intervention group actually had a downward trend. And this will be important in our discussion later on um, in terms of why we think this might be. With regard to research question number two, we were looking at, is there a difference between initial and final child skin carotenoid status over the seven-week intervention program? And um, the VeggieMeter has scores that range from zero to 850. And at baseline, both groups were about at 270. And as you can see throughout the time, um, the skin carotenoid status levels were significantly higher in the intervention group at post-test compared with the comparison group. You can see that they ended at about 267, whereas the comparison group ended at about 230. And this was statistically significant. And so while skin carotenoid status declined in both groups, from baseline to post-test, a significantly smaller decline observed was observed in the intervention group. And so we're thinking children exposed to these, the food-based learning intervention had better diet quality at the end of the year, at the end of the intervention in February. So where does this leave us? So our intervention group, like we said, experienced a significantly smaller decline in their skin carotenoid levels, suggesting that a food-based STEAM um, intervention may positively influence children's dietary quality. But I wanna look back at that data really quick and talk about some of the trends. So both groups from time point one to time point two increased their fruit and vegetable consumption. And you can see that as the numbers go up. However, from the second to third data collection point, children were out of school for three weeks for winter break. So skin carotenoid status indicative of four to six weeks prior to the measurement is indicative of four to six weeks prior to the measurement. So therefore, we hypothesize that um, the increase of both groups from time point one to time point two actually reflects that children were having the same access to the same school meals while they were at Head Start. Prior research suggests, though, that children who come from low-income backgrounds may not have the same access to fruits and vegetables when they're outside of the school environment, like when they're on break, explaining why there was a decrease in both groups. However, when we look from time point two to time point three, the control group dropped significantly, um, while the intervention group more or less maintained their consumption. And that could be that children in this group were likely consuming more fruits and vegetables during and after the intervention when those foods were readily available at, at school, regardless of the availability that they had at home. Children's liking, however, though, was not positively impact. In fact, like we pointed out on that slide, there was a slight decrease in the intervention group. However, based on prior research, this is to be expected. Children's liking for vegetables tends to decline before it then increases. Another prior study suggested that consumption precludes improvements in child-reported liking of the same vegetables. And so it's likely that our inter intervention was not long enough to see that, that backwards uptrend. And so we were just on decline. Thirdly, contrary to prior studies, we focused on vegetables that were already familiar to children. The literature that cites eight to 12 exposures needed to impact children's preference for vegetables generally focuses on the introduction of new or novel foods that children don't have prior experience with. In fact, there is little evidence to help us understand how preference evolves for vegetables that children have already been exposed to, like those that are in our intervention. If you're thinking about your broccoli, your carrots, your tomatoes. 
And so improving preferences for familiar foods might actually be more challenging, particularly if you're thinking that children have already decided, I don't like that food and or have had other negative experiences with that food in the past. So in our study, based on parent report and data from what was observed on the menu, we know definitively that children already had a decent many exposures to those target vegetables, indicating it's very possible they'd already decided, hey, I don't like these. But directing food experiences towards those familiar vegetables is really important because it's likely reflective of the vegetables that children have access to in their daily lives, both at home and at school. And so if we want to support children's consumption of vegetables, we have to really start with the foods that we know that they can easily access. So why is all of this important? Well, we did nothing to change children's access to fruits and vegetables. And so while access doesn't mean that children are going to eat the fruits and vegetables, prior research has demonstrated that access plus education can lead to improved consumption. So this means that children in our intervention group were possibly consuming more fruits and vegetables when they were available due to the food-based learning intervention that they received. And so future work will need to look for ways to improve this access in and outside the classroom and then later reevaluate these effects. And so overall, this study provides promising evidence that we can use integrative learning as a way to impact children's dietary quality so that in the school environment, when we know that healthy foods are going to be available, that children are more likely to consume them because we know that it doesn't really matter if the broccoli is on the plate unless it gets inside the child. But that begs two really big questions. What about sustainability of this work? And what about the home environment? Well, for this work to be sustainable in Head Start, we really need to learn how to engage the teachers to be doing this kind of work rather than outside educators, college students, volunteers, and parents. Because implementing food-based learning in the classroom is critical to come alongside families so that we spread it out. However, a recent needs assessment revealed that while teachers value food-based learning, so they acknowledge that they do value it, and they like the idea of integrating it with other academic domains, like we mentioned at the beginning of the presentation, teachers really aren't sure what that looks like in the classroom. One teacher stated in this qualitative study, you can use food to teach so many things, like language, literacy, and math. But aside from talking about where that food comes from and what it does for our bodies, I'm not really sure how to make that into an activity. And so this really highlights a gap, a need to help teachers come alongside teachers to show them and, and educate them on, okay, how do we how do we do this in the classroom? How do we incorporate healthy foods into our academic domains? And so to address this barrier, we have created a Head Start teacher professional development program to train teachers on how to create quality experiences in the classroom um, using food. And so this project is funded by a five-year National Institute of Health Health Science Education Partnership Award, where Head Start teachers are enrolled in the program called PEACE, where they learn strategies on how to use fruits and vegetables to teach science, math, and literacy-related content so that not only are children exposed to healthy foods, but also working towards meeting those that Head Start goal of kindergarten readiness. And so during the 2021-2022 school year, we implemented the pilot of this program and will re-implement um, again um, this coming year in the 2023-2024 um, school year. So lastly, we know that creating connections outside the classroom through partnerships like Steps to Health, Families, Eating Smart, Moving More, and Farm to ECE can be critical for promoting an environment that's supportive of healthy behaviors and connecting children, parents, and teachers to the resources that they need to be successful. In the future, we hope to continue aligning our programming so that we're working together to improve both the access, but also the consumption of healthy foods, not just for children, but also teachers, parents, and the larger community. So with that being said, I'd like to thank you for listening today. And again, my name is Jocelyn Dixon, and I'm the project coordinator under Dr. Virginia Stage, and we work alongside a wonderful team. I'd love to open the floors to questions, ideas, and discussion at this time. Thank you so much. That was very interesting to learn about. Um, so if you have any questions, please put those in the question box so that I can moderate those to our speakers. One question um, that I have for you, as you think about it being more difficult to, or potentially more difficult to increase liking of vegetables students have already been exposed to, 
Do you plan on doing any future research in that area specifically, or do you have any recommendations for studies that could be done to um, look at how do we improve liking a food that students are already familiar with? Do you want me to jump in, Jacqueline? <laughs> I was, I muted myself for a second. Yeah, you can jump in. Okay, and just add to whatever you'd like to add. Um, so we have, we tend to be more interventionist in terms of developing programs um, and then implementing them and seeing the outcome versus some of those original studies were more experimental kind of done in um, what we call the, the child care labs where you've got the, the school lab set up and you can go in and do these experiments over time and really measure how that preference is changing. Leanne Birch's work was foundational in that space. Um, but we are very interested in adding to the literature on that as much as we can. And so one of the things we've been careful to do is every time we go in and do one of these interventions, we've begun to make sure we're building in multiple data point collection time, multiple periods to collect data, if that makes sense. So instead of just kind of doing a pre-post, um, we're building in intermittent you know, periods of data collection. The last pilot study Jocelyn mentioned, we actually, instead of doing three time points, we did four and it was over a longer period of time. So what we're hoping to see is as we're doing the intervention work we're doing is can we learn more about how those preferences are changing and how long it takes to move on some of those more um, familiar foods that kids are getting more frequently, but we're not really sure how many exposures it'll take to turn the dime um, on that preference. Yeah. Yeah. And then did you say most of the vegetables were steamed or were they prepared in different ways? I remember you talking about the broccoli being steamed. Mm -hmm. The broccoli, so it there were different ways. So the broccoli, the first time it was um, exposed, it was steamed. And then the next time it was raw. And that's when they created the vinaigrette. Um, things like the sweet potatoes, those were always roasted. Um, but by and large, and they were raw. Okay. I wondered if you looked at all at preparation method and if that changed liking at all. We didn't dive specifically into comparing the different types of preparation, but there were a variety of methods used um, to prepare it in the study. And the literature does back that up, Kristen, where um, even just changes in color, changes in texture can greatly impact how a child perceives that food. I mean, something that they might eat all the time at the child care center because it's offered over and over again. They may refuse at home because it looks a little different or it's prepped or vice versa. You know, that's not how my mom cooks that. Like I'm not touching that kind of attitude. Um, there's a lot of really interesting studies that even look like I said, it, it color changes, um, even children having preferences towards like green grapes versus the purple ones. Um, there's a lot of variety and what changes those preferences. And so one of the things that we're really careful to do is when we integrate these foods is we think about what are the transformations they're being exposed to. Um, and even in our assessments where we're using pictures to cognitively assess a lot of times we'll insert a couple different types of pictures. Like it's not just the one broccoli picture, but we'll actually show the broccoli in a couple different ways, for example, because um, it changes based on what they see. Um, so really interesting stuff. Kids are so funny to work they with are. when it comes to foods. Yeah, they really are. So another question, aside from the vinaigrette, were any other dips or sauces or salt or seasoning used? Mm -mm. All the other ones were, were um, the, there was the vinaigrette and then all the other ones were just presented in the raw. Mm -hmm. okay. And then like the sweet potatoes being roasted, they were just roasted did they have oil or anything like that? Yeah, they had they had a little bit of olive oil on them, but they weren't there wasn't salt and pepper on them. Okay, mm -hmm. and they were cubed. In mm -hmm. but an interesting side note from the pilot we just did, which was a follow up to the study she just discussed. Teachers actually are requesting more variety, and not just the foods being served, but also what it's being served with. Um, so spinach, for example, a lot of our teachers were like, can we serve something alongside? So it sort of changes up. And we know from the literature that 
providing dips or some sort of sauce along with the vegetable can be very positive in the interaction that they have with that food and then future consumption. So um, we're looking at integrating, we're in a revision year right now for that um, curriculum and are looking at integrating some more of those um, strategies to support teachers as they're introducing those foods, but then also to encourage children to continue to eat them. Gotcha. Are the teachers preparing the food at school and are the kids involved in preparing the food in any way? So for in the study that was um, just talked about, teachers were not involved in preparing the food because um, teachers were not the ones implementing the activities. So we had a team of students from who were in the Department of Nutrition Science here at East Carolina. And that's sort of the part that I oversaw was them implementing those activities in the classroom. And the reason really being was um, just to first build relationship with the teachers rather than saying, here you go, here's these activities for you to implement, us coming alongside them was really great for relationship building with those specific teachers. Um, and so, but then there was that question with doing that what's the sustainability piece, right, to make sure that teachers are eventually equipped with the ability to do that while also maintaining, okay, what goals do they have and how can we come alongside those goals so that we're addressing everybody's goals um, in, in helping them with that child. Yeah, that makes sense. But we did, we did do something slightly different for this last pilot um, where we did have teachers then taking control. So Jocelyn's study, we did it partly too to control the fidelity of that intervention. So we could really tightly, you know, make sure that the things that were being said and the way the food was being served was um, tightly controlled. You kind of lose some of that control when you hand it off to a teacher as an interventionist. Um, so this last pilot as follow-up did have teachers doing that. What we tried to do the foods fairly easy so there wasn't a ton of preparation required. The foods pretty much stayed in their, um, say, raw form. You know, if it was spinach, they had a bag of spinach, that kind of thing. They didn't have to do a ton of prep because um, that is one of the barriers that teachers face in having to yeah. do a ton of preparation um, in, the, in light of all of the food safety policies on top of that. Um, but the other thing that we also were able to do was integrate the foods that were coming into the classroom into CACFP. So we no longer provided those foods. The center was able to order extra foods because we made sure that the foods that were part of the curriculum were aligned with the menu. So they ordered extra that then provided those foods to teachers for the food-based learning piece. Um, and it was the first time doing it, it wasn't perfect. We still have quite a bit of work to figure out how to make that be more streamlined and effective for teachers, but it's a good method to think about long-term for making that sustainable and a little bit easier on the program as well as the teachers. So then the teachers don't have to go pick it up separately on their exactly. own. It's there yes. as part of what's going on. Yep. Yep. It's already there in the kitchen and they pick it up and, um, in theory, usually we try to make sure it's labeled and like they know that that's for that activity. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It, 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 yeah, there's still kinks, but it, it's a very promising um, method for people that are trying to, to make this happen. Yeah. Any perspectives on if preschools could increase access and intake by utilizing a school garden alongside your work? I'll let you answer that, Virginia, because you're okay. on with that right now. Yeah. We are getting ready to do a little pilot in this on this in the spring. Um, so one of the sites we've been working with for several years um, is very interested. In fact, we had a couple teachers in the pilot we just finished, not to confuse everybody, but the one that was follow up to Jocelyn's study. Because our our she, the new lessons really focus a lot on growing and like seeds and plants, and we didn't have them build a garden in the back, but we did have and do a lot of container garden, for, in, for instance. And we had a couple teachers that actually already had a raised bed, wasn't really being used, that went rogue, so to speak, and started doing um, a lot of that gardening on their own. And so what we are going to do in the spring is go in and we've partnered with um, a farm to ECE group out of North Carolina State University that has additional training to pair with our PEAS intervention and we're going to go back into a smaller center and build out a gardening component and see how well the two things can complement each other. 
once we have the feasibility and the kinks worked out, um, doing a small process evaluation, then we can go back in and start looking, okay, well, what did that do for child outcomes? And use one of our other centers as a comparison to see if we see any differences there. Um, Cause gardening has a lot of promise too in getting kids to grow things, um, especially things if we can then have them taste those things out of the garden or bring things in that are similar to what they're growing. Yeah, yeah. another sensory experience with the vegetables. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that foods were primarily served fresh or cooked and unseasoned. And do you think that adding seasoning or dips would increase the acceptability to students? Is another question that came in. Absolutely. I think that's something that's supported by the literature. And so moving forward in that um, that five-year study that we're in the midst of right now, we just finished the pilot of that study um, last year. And so we're in revision year and then we'll be re-implementing. And that's something that we got a lot of feedback on um, that teachers were interested in and hypothesizing that that might be helpful. And so that's definitely something that we're discussing and making changes and revisions to the program um, for um, next year's um, implementation. But for this, what this um, study that this pilot study that I was talking about today, the only there was only one instance where we had a dip. Yeah. So as uh, attendee just says, this sounds like a great partnership with nutrition and health orgs like Whole Foods Kitchen, Whole Teachers Program, Tinker Garden, and other food-based learning environments for kids and teachers. Great work, everyone. And I agree. This sounds like such a neat program, and I really appreciate you sharing it with us today uh, so that we can learn more about the work that you did. Um, I think that's all the questions we have at this time. Uh, So again, thank you both for sharing your work. And at this point, I can hand it back to Rachel. Yes, thank you very much. So interesting. Um, Just a reminder that when I close the webinar, there'll be a short survey. We appreciate your feedback. And then watch for an email by uh, Wednesday of this week with your uh, CEU certificate, the recording, um, and the um, handout for today. And then just a reminder, the um, Journal Club will be back next Monday. So we'll see you um, back online. Um, always just keep, watch the SNEB website for updates on upcoming webinars. I can give you a heads up that there's going to be a, a DEI-focused webinar in mid-November. Uh, and then there's still time to submit a program for the 2023 conference. I've been watching my email, lots of uh, program ideas coming through today. Um, but go ahead and um, use the online form to make that submission of your ideas to share your research. And we will look forward to seeing you back online soon.